1948, uh, 20 adults and 15 children met for the very first time at Grand Army Hall here in Hingham under the name of Second Baptist Church in Hingham. Uh, for the next few years, Grand Army Hall would be the house of the Lord on Sunday mornings, and then that group would meet in the middle of the week in the home of church members here in Hingham uh, for prayer and for fellowship. Uh, that was 1948, 1956. Uh, that group of people purchased this tract of property uh, going back to the woods and the home next door. And then that same year also changed the name of the church from Second Baptist Hingham to South Shore Baptist Church in order to better reflect the makeup of the membership as well as the mission of the church. Uh, we carry with us today a legacy of commitment to the gospel, a legacy of the gospel to the nations, a legacy of fellowship and commitment to one another. Uh, we have always been a church made up of people from towns, not just a town, though we love our town. We are a church of towns and people from many different walks of life who gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm grateful for those things about us today as a church that have been true for 75 years. There are ways we are different and there are ways that we are beautifully the same and I praise God for it. I'm so grateful to be a part of this church, grateful uh, to get to add my name to the list of faithful pastors who gave the gospel to this church uh, over many, many years, grateful for the legacy that we get to carry, the names of the men and women who have given us this church, not as an organization, not as a building, uh, but as a faith family that glorifies God and advances his kingdom. I'm grateful to be a part of this church with you. Now, this is a day for celebration. It's a day for rejoicing, a day for memories. But I'm afraid that we have to discuss a very scary subject. If you had known what today's sermon was about, you might have chosen to stay home because this topic is truly terrifying. It is scarier than a dentist with blood on his shirt scarier than a sous chef with a sinus infection. It's scarier than the government's use of your tax money. Today we bring this sermon series on our church membership covenant to a close with the topic of evangelism. Now, as members of our church, we have a membership covenant. That membership covenant is made up of eight different commitments that we make to the Lord and to each other. And so, uh, in the last few weeks, uh, as we've prepared to celebrate this Sunday, uh, we've been walking uh, commitment by commitment through that covenant. And today, uh, we're going to consider our final commitment in our membership covenant series. And that commitment should be here on the screen. It's the seventh out of eight. Uh, and that commitment says this, with God's help, we will pray for the salvation of our family and friends, live uprightly and humbly before them, love them, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to them as God gives us opportunity. 
How truly scary is this for you? The first part, not so much. The, the pray for people we love, got it. Live uprightly and humbly before them, yeah, we'll do our best. Love them, you betcha. Proclaim the gospel, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll, I, I love Jesus. I, I love lost people. I'm concerned about the lost. I believe in the power of the gospel to save souls. Look, I'll tithe. I'll support missionaries. I'll pray for people. Just don't ask me to talk about Jesus with anyone. And yet, the Bible does not give us any other way to be a follower of Jesus than to be a follower who speaks the gospel. Every believer is equipped and called by God to make Christ known through a verbal witness. God wants this for you. Do you want what God wants for you? Because God wants this for you, so we should not be afraid. When you begin to read the book of Acts, in Acts chapters 1 and the first part of chapter 2, you're going to find a group of believers who are a jumble of emotions. Some of them are afraid. Almost all of them are confused. Jesus had been executed on a Roman cross. His dead body laid in a tomb. Three days later, his alive body walked out of that tomb. And for many days after that, he lived with, walked amongst, and taught those early believers and in doing so, he gave them a promise. You can read that promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He, he said, the Holy Spirit, or he said, the power from on high is going to come upon you. This power from God is going to land on you. And when it does, you're going to be my witnesses in J Jerusalem, the city, in Judea, the region, in Samaria, the neighbor to the north, and the uttermost parts of the earth, which means the south shore of New England. And so Jesus gives them this promise, and then he gives them a command. He said, uh, stay in Jerusalem until the power comes. And after that, Jesus was gone. They watched him ascend into heaven, and he was gone. And they are left with a promise and a command. Power is coming. Go wait on it in Jerusalem. Well, Acts chapter 2 describes what happened when the power of God fell to these believers and with that power, they became the first people to tell of Jesus' death and resurrection and the promise of salvation to all who believe. And this is the pattern for every believer since. And so when we study Acts chapter 2, we should walk away with strength and confidence at all that God has done to make us evangelists, to make us the sorts of people who speak of the glories of Christ to others in our lives. My goal today is to inspire you to be the kind of Christian who shares the gospel confidently and regularly. And Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 eradicates all of our excuses by showing us five ways God equips us to share the gospel. I want you to follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We find those first believers waiting together in a home for the power from on high. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. 
They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they are drunk on new wine. How does God take weak, anonymous, ill-prepared, scared believers and turn us into gospel-speaking powerhouses? This passage shows us five ways God equips us to share the gospel. The first is this, God gives us overflowing faith. In order for us to do this work that God has called us to do, He gives us overflowing faith. In verses 1 to 4, we find the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the power from on high would fall on these believers. And that power from on high is God the Holy Spirit Himself. Not some weird mystical thing. It's God Himself filling these believers. And Luke describes this holy visitation with vivid language. He says, they heard a violent rushing wind. They saw tongues like flames of fire that came to rest on each of them. And then they all began to speak in different languages. Now, for our purposes today, I'm most interested in this line in verse 4. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? There is no shortage of confusion around making sense of this line. Uh, I, I grew up, or my, my growing up years were spent uh, primarily around charismatic churches. And that only added to my confusion as to what this line means. And so uh, here's what I want to do. I want to give you the Cody definition of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and then I want to give some explanation and add some clarity. Uh, when I finish this segment, you should have perfect clarity on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. If you disagree with my take, I welcome coffee and a conversation uh, later this week. That would be lovely. Here's my definition of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit is an act of the Holy Spirit in partnership with willing believers in which He intensifies the believer's faith and produces joyful, God-glorifying results. Let's first clarify by stating what the filling of the Holy Spirit is not. It is not receiving something that you as a Christian do not already have. Every Christian possesses the entirety, the fullness of the Holy Spirit from the time we repent and believe. 
Romans 8, 9, and 10. Uh, to have the Spirit is to be in Christ. To be in Christ is to have the Spirit. Without the Spirit, you're not in Christ. Also, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not an extra or additional experience that believers need to seek. As if the man of God needs to lay hands on you so that you would then be filled with the Spirit. Prior to that, you're saved light. But then you're saved fully or empowered fully or uh, some different uh, maturity or level of Christian. So the filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we are filled with the Holy Spirit as a substance, as if you have a tank that needs the Holy Spirit poured into it. That's not what Luke or Paul or any of the New Testament writers are describing. The Holy Spirit is not the thing we're filled with, but rather He is the one doing the filling. We are filled with, we are filled by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit already abides in you in full. That's the glory of salvation. God, prior to this moment, uh, He dwelt with His people first in a holy tent called the tabernacle, and next in a holy temple. And then He dwelt with us with flesh on, Jesus Christ. And now, God the Holy Spirit dwells in believers in full. You are His temple, His dwelling place. Now, I think it's most helpful if we think about this phrase, the filling of the Spirit, as a figure of speech. Throughout the Bible, the language of filling or being filled is used in many metaphorical ways. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, the earth was filled with wickedness. In Deuteronomy 34, Joshua is filled with wisdom. In Job chapter 10, Job is filled with shame. And then in the New Testament, people are filled with all sorts of things. People are filled with jealousy, filled with deceit, filled with rage, filled with confusion, filled with sorrow, filled with unrighteousness, filled with goodness, filled with knowledge. So when Luke uses this phrase here in the book of Acts, or when Paul uses it in his letters, it is a figure of speech that is describing action taken by the Holy Spirit on a believer. It is passive. Meaning, you don't fill yourself, but rather this is the act of God, the Holy Spirit, on you. You are the recipient of this action. And though it is passive, it is still something that believers are to pursue. We don't just wait until we hit the Holy Spirit lottery and boom, He fills us and we're good to go. But Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Don't be drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul talks about it as something we are to pursue. We are to pursue this action of God upon us. So, when the Holy Spirit fills us, what is He filling us with? Here's where I'm throwing down my anchor. I'm saying the Holy Spirit always fills us with faith. And every action that flows out of that filling is an action that comes out of the overflow of our faith in God. Faith is the word I would use to describe the confidence, the courage, the hope, the obedience that comes to believers when they are filled by the Spirit. Now, to be clear, the Holy Spirit is not filling us with saving faith. We are already saved in full. You're already God's child by faith in Jesus Christ. But rather, this is faith 
in an everyday walk with Jesus sense of the word. It's also faith for intense moments of pressure. So again, when Paul told us in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, he's not describing some extraordinary special experience. He's just talking about the normal day-to-day life of every believer. Every Christian should pray regularly to the Holy Spirit, fill me. It should be regular language in our praying. God, Holy Spirit, fill me today for the tasks I have in front of me that I know about, for the surprises that are going to come up along the way, for the people that I'll cross paths with today. Holy Spirit, fill me for all that you have for me today. You're praying, fill me with faith that I would obey, that I would believe, that I would act on your word. But also, it's not just for everyday, uh, uh, our everyday walk with Jesus, but filling of the Spirit is also for these intense moments, particularly difficult moments in the life of a believer. And again, we have multiple examples of that here, here in the New Testament. So in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested by religious authorities, and they are drugged before uh, this, this uh, Supreme Court, and they have to give an account for themselves. And in Acts chapter 4, we're told Peter was filled with the Spirit, and he spoke the gospel to these religious authorities. In this intense moment of pressure, the Holy Spirit fills him with faith. The overflow of that faith is the proclamation of the gospel. After they leave that place, they go back to where all the other believers are gathered. And in Acts chapter 4, again, they were all once again filled with the Spirit and they proclaimed the gospel. Faith overflowed in the proclamation of the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are persecuted. And we're told there that they are again filled with the Spirit. And the result is joy in the Lord. So the Holy Spirit fills us with faith for our everyday lives, as well as for those particular moments of pressure and hardship. A prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit might sound something like this, I believe, help my unbelief. In that upper room in Acts chapter 2, God the Holy Spirit poured into those believers a faith that overflowed in the miraculous proclamation of the gospel in various languages. And God the Holy Spirit gives you the faith to move past every fear, every doubt, every hesitation to share the gospel. How many times have you made excuses for why you aren't fit to tell someone else about Jesus? I don't know enough, I'm an introvert, I'm too messed up, I'm too scared. Every excuse is a failure of faith. God sees your failure of faith and responds with grace and gives you the faith you need. The Holy Spirit fills you with the faith you need for the task in front of you. It takes faith to share the faith. It takes faith that God will bless the telling of the gospel. It takes faith that people are saved by hearing the gospel and believing it. It takes faith that the message you are delivering are the actual words of eternal life. It takes faith that God would bless the word spoken through such a weak vessel. So when your faith falters, God the Holy Spirit fills you and sends you out. How does God equip us 
to share the gospel with the people in our lives. He fills us to overflowing with faith. There's a second way God equips us for this task. God gives us the moment. In verses 5 and 6, God gives us the moment. He is the sovereign in the telling of the gospel in the moment in which it all happens. So verse 5 tells us there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. So the details of this story confirm that God orchestrated this moment. This isn't mere coincidence. God brought all these people together. Remember what Jesus said to those believers uh, in chapter 1. He told them, stay in Jerusalem until the power from on high comes. Why does he want them in Jerusalem? Well, because it's, the, it's holiday season. It's Pentecost. And Pentecost is one of three pilgrimage holidays in Judaism. And so faithful Jews would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe the holy day there. And so you have uh, people from all over the empire who have flooded into Jerusalem for this season. And here are the believers waiting on the power from on high. It's not a coincidence. God has orchestrated all of this. He has brought people from all around. They paid their own bus fare to get to Jerusalem on this day. And that's where the believers are when God the Holy Spirit falls and fills them and they speak the gospel in the streets of the city. Does God still work in this way? Does he order the steps of a person's life so that they will hear the gospel and believe? You better believe he does. What you and I think is coincidence or luck or whatever you might say about it, it is God at work, the sovereign one who loves the lost and orders their steps so that they will hear the gospel. And does God work in this way in order to bring people across your path so that they would hear the gospel from you? You better believe he does. He has chosen you and called you and equipped you for this. He moves the pieces of your life and theirs so that your paths would cross and you would have the opportunity to speak of the glories of Christ. It is never an accident when the opportunity arises. God is always in that moment. Now, to be sure, we need to use discernment about when the moment is right. But God is bringing people to you for these holy moments. When the opportunity comes to share your faith, you can have confidence that God is there. He's made this moment for His glory. And so here I want to take a moment and speak to anyone that might be with us today that's not a follower of Jesus Christ, because this could be your moment. This could be the God-ordained time for you. I'm so grateful that you've come to worship with us today. But friend, listen to me closely. God brought you here for a specific purpose, not just to observe one day or to celebrate an anniversary, but so that you would receive new life through faith in Jesus Christ today. This is the good news of Jesus, that you're a sinner and your sin has separated you from God. That's true for every single one of us in this room. There's not one of us that has a different story than this, that God made us for His glory, and we've rebelled against it. 
Adam and Eve's sin in the garden is our own sin. We continue in that rebellion today. And there's nothing that we can do to change that on our own. It doesn't matter your religious pedigree. It doesn't matter that you show up on the 75th anniversary. It doesn't matter what a good neighbor you are or how environmentally conscious you are or, or that you have rescued all your pets from shelters. It doesn't matter the moral code you live by, how religious you are or how sinful you would say you have not been. We are all separated from God because of our own sin, deserving of the judgment a rebel receives from its creator. The good news is this. Although we are dead in our sin, God loves you, and He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty that you deserve for your sin. No one else could do what Jesus has done because He is fully God and fully man. Not 50-50, a little of one, a little of the other. Fully God and fully man, born of a virgin. He has to be fully God for His death to be effective in saving us. He has to be fully man in order to really live and really die. And so He did. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. They laid Him in a tomb, and three days later, He rose from the dead. It validates everything that He said about Himself. It's the reason why we put our faith in Him. If He's still a pile of bones somewhere, we're wasting our time. We believe in a resurrected Savior, really died, really rose again. And His promise to you is this, if you will turn to Him in faith, He will forgive you for your sin. He'll clean you, He'll make you His child, you'll be His forevermore. You you get a new name, you get a new family, you get a new life, you get all that God has created you for when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. This is your moment. This is your time. And when this service is done, I want you to grab me or another pastor or someone that you came in the room with. I would not leave this piece of property without knowing my faith is in Christ and my eternity is His. This is your moment. God gives us the moment that here and now we can share our faith with others. God gives us the faith. He gives us the moment. There's a third thing God gives us to equip us. God gives us weakness. God gives us weakness. Look look at how the crowd responds initially in verses 7 and 8. It says, They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? So one of the more common reasons we don't talk to other people about Jesus is because of what we perceive as our own personal weaknesses. We may think, well, I'm I'm not the talking type, or there's got to be someone better to do this job. Uh, There was weakness on display in the disciples, even on this day, and that weakness was their pedigree. Aren't all these men who are speaking Galileans? We can understand that question in two ways. Uh, First of all, it could just be a statement of surprise that people from Galilee know these many different languages. So it's at least that, at least a statement of surprise. But this statement could also be a jab at their intellectual ability. What's a Galilean doing speaking this dialect from this distant part of the kingdom? So it's not just a statement of surprise. It could also be an insult. Now, this is a weakness that's lobbed onto them from the crowd 
But here's what you and I do all so often. We are the ones who are piling the weaknesses on ourselves. We are damaging ourselves, acting as our own discouragers. But did you know that your weakness is God's opportunity? We think, God, here's all the reasons you can't use me, you shouldn't use me, you should use someone else. And God says, that's precisely the reason I want you. Because in our weakness, God is made great. He's the hero of the gospel moment. Not me, not you. God's the hero of it. In this text, the fact that the speakers were Galileans actually played in their favor. It added to the wonder of the moment. And it gave validity to the fact that something special was going on here. We're under the misconception that we have to hit some sort of mystical mark of perfection before God can properly use us. And we all grade ourselves low in our discipleship, in our maturity. And so we we don't push past that. We're debilitated by that thought. But you would be wise to recognize that the power to speak about Jesus is not in your pedigree or in your training, but it is in the Holy Spirit. And God does not make mistakes. He doesn't fumble this holy work by using you. It's precisely how He's going to accomplish the work. Now, to say this is Holy Spirit work is not to say that education and training aren't important. They are. And listen to me, brother, sister, Christian, you, as a baseline uh, part of being a Christian, every single one of us who follow Christ should be able to articulate the gospel in our own words. I, I don't mean what is the gospel to you. I mean Christ died, He rose again. By faith in Him, we find salvation. You must be able to articulate that. And if you can't, this week, you find the resources to get it done. Do not go through this week not being able to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. So education, training, these things are important. But what happened in Jerusalem that day was not because the disciples were awesome, but because God was awesome. Our weaknesses are a blessing because they make us more dependable on God, more desperate for God, and they require us to rely on Him. Have you ever stopped to consider that God created you? weaknesses and all. He knows exactly who you are, and still He has commissioned you as His witness. He has not made a mistake. You are the one He wants. So He has equipped you with faith. He has equipped you with the moment. He has given you weakness. Fourth, God gives us His mission. He gives us His mission. From verses 9 to 11, Luke lists 15 different towns and regions that are represented in the crowd that day. And what did they hear? They heard in their own languages the magnificent acts of God. Now, I want to show you a map that pinpoints where all these people are from. It's a great map. Can I get a woohoo for the map? (laughs) And uh, on this map, The big gray blob in the middle is the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know if you can see this red dot to the right where Jerusalem is located. And then all of these numbered places, towns, and regions that are named here in Acts chapter 2. People from all these regions had come to Jerusalem on this day. And they all heard the gospel, not in the, the, the 
wide empire language of the day, but in their specific dialects. Now, all too often when we read this story, we get distracted by the miracle of the different languages. It's an incredible miracle. But the highlight of the story is not that miracle. The highlight of the story is the multiplication of God's glory to all the nations. You see, what happened in Acts chapter 2 has direct ties to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, as well as the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve this. He gave them this mandate, this job to fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Their job is to fill the earth with the glory of God. But from the Garden of Eden, humans rebelled time and time again until the pinnacle of their rebellion hits in Genesis chapter 11. God still desires for His people to fill the earth with His glory, but instead what happens in Genesis 11 is everyone gathered in one location in Babylon, in the valley of Shinar, and there they stopped listening to God and they started just listening to themselves. Let us, is what they said repeatedly. And then they built a monument to their own greatness. You know how the story goes. Perhaps God then came down and He diversified their languages so they could no longer communicate and then the people scattered from there. When we read the story of the Tower of Babel, we often think that the, the the diversification of languages is God's judgment on these people. It's not judgment, it's grace. God's mandate is to fill the earth with His glory, and in grace, He will scatter His people to the far reaches of the earth, and if it takes different languages to get it done, He will fulfill His will even in the face of the sin of mankind. He will establish His kingdom in the midst of the sinful kingdoms of men. And here in Acts chapter 2, the scattered people are gathered to Jerusalem. The gospel is given to them in their languages. And then they return to their lands to fill the earth with the glory of God. So anytime you share the gospel, you are participating in and fulfilling God's mandate that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden to fill the earth with His glory. That's God's mission. That's His work. That's why we're on this planet. So if our church is going to celebrate again in another 75 years, it will be because we do the work of God because we are a people who pass on the mission of God to future generations. Now look, it's possible that South Shore Baptist Church can make it to 150 years. And we can do that without God. In all of our towns are houses of worship that are old and lifeless. And they long ago abandoned the Word of God. And they long ago abandoned the mission of God. And they long ago lost the fire of the Holy Spirit. Old is not an accomplishment. But age with gospel faithfulness, age with the kingdom of God at the forefront of the reason we gather, that's what we want the church at 150 years to celebrate. 
That's what we want to honor God with and glorify Him with. Not that the organization made it to a birthday, but that His mission continues through His faithful servants. We are saved to do this, created to do this. God empowers us to do this. We are here to fill the earth with God's glory through the proclamation of the gospel. God gives us faith to do it. The moment, weakness, the mission. Finally, God gives us the response. God is the one who gives us the response. In verses 12 and 13, there are two immediate responses to this proclamation of the gospel. First of all, some people are amazed. Verse 12, they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So they wanted to know more, and and as you read through the rest of chapter 2, they hear more. Peter the denier becomes Peter the proclaimer, and he speaks the gospel powerfully, and at the end of chapter 2, thousands of people repent and are baptized, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But some were dismissive. Verse 13, some sneered and said they're drunk on new wine. They see the spectacle. They, they assume that this group of Galileans is drunk. Uh, it's interesting to me that Jesus was also called a drunkard by his detractors. Uh, what a great insult to carry. It's interesting to me that here we have these two general groups that emerge from this singular moment. They've heard the same message, they've seen the same thing, but they respond in two very different ways. It shows me that God is in complete control of how the message is received and how the individual responds. Some people will respond favorably and others will not. Some people will think you make sense and others will think you're day drunk. God is in the gospel-speaking moment. He's working in you, giving you the words, and He is with the other person as well, nudging them towards truth, or He's hardening their hearts, perhaps temporarily, until their appointed time to hear and to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. You will face resistance when you talk about Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. Who cares? Just welcome to the faith. And so you, you, you enter into a long line of people who have come before us who through great adversity have made Jesus Christ known. God plans the resistance as well as the acceptance. Maybe you're going to move that person one step closer to the cross, uh, nudging them towards truth, or maybe, maybe God is doing something else in their life while He's forming you through your obedience and forming them through the reception of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 5.11, you're blessed when men insult you. We talked about this last week. You're blessed when people insult you for His name's sake. Do you know how you fail when it comes to sharing the gospel? There's only one way you fail. You only fail by not speaking the gospel. A few possible outcomes. You speak the gospel and they believe and call on Christ. That's a win. You speak the gospel and they say, I want to know more, but I'm not ready now. That's a win. You speak the gospel and they insult you or persecute you. You win. The only way you lose is by keeping silent. It's a losing strategy every time. God gives us the response. Your responsibility is to be faithful 
Don't worry about the results. Let God take care of that. Success is not in the results you manufacture, but they are in your obedience. God gives us the response. Man, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 leaves us without excuse. It makes clear that God has perfectly equipped us to share the gospel. He's equipped us by giving us overflowing faith, the opportunity, our weaknesses, His mission, and the results. He has given you all these things so that you would tell people with your own mouth about the glories of Jesus Christ. This is your incredible task. This is your gift from God. And still we object. You might say, Cody, I'm not one to speak about Jesus. It's just not who I am. I prefer a lifestyle witness. After all, St. Francis of Assisi said, share the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that quote before? It's a very famous quote. Share the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. People love that quote. I've got two responses. First of all, uh, there is good scholarly evidence that St. Francis of Assisi never said that. Second... I don't care if he did say it. It is the dumbest thing said in the history of dumb things said. Share the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That's like saying breathe and if necessary, inhale oxygen. (laughs) Fight hunger and if necessary, use food. It doesn't make any sense. You're not sharing the gospel if you're not speaking of the magnificent acts of God. What do you mean preach the gospel and maybe use words? There's there's no other way for the gospel to be made known. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. They have not heard the gospel until they've heard it from your lips. Now, that may mean any sort of strategy, any number of of clever ways you get the gospel in front of them. Maybe you speak it. Maybe you give them a Bible. Maybe you invite them to church and have a conversation after the fact. There's any number of ways this can happen. But the gospel isn't preached until it's preached. You've got to say it. And still you might push back and say, oh, but Cody, you, you don't understand how spiritually dark New England is. This is rocky spiritual soil. Rockier than first century Jerusalem? It's literally built on a mountain. Rockier than that? Who among us will go tell God his plan is not going to work here? We need a plan B. Anyone want to take that message to the throne? God knows what he's doing. And if the gospel can flourish in this way in Acts chapter 2 and on, then certainly it can catch fire right here where we live. There is no plan B for the salvation of souls. It is through the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ from believers in a local church using resources to get the gospel to the places where Christ is not known. You are plan A for the salvation of the people in Hingham, the South Shore, and beyond. You are. Through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, so many churches can call themselves an Acts, excuse me, an Acts 2 church, but that might only be because they resemble verse 1, gathered together in the same room. 
And so many churches would pat themselves on the back and say, the glory of God is with us because we are gathered in the same room. I don't want to be that sort of Acts 2 church, and neither do you. I want to be an Acts 2 church because our gathering is where we find power to go out into the streets with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no more reason for us to wait. The waiting is done. The power has come. It is time to tell people of Jesus Christ. So when this church gathers to celebrate 100 years or 125 or 150 and beyond, they need to look back to this day as the time that we caught the fire of God. Let the story be told of how we believed God's call on our lives and the power of the spoken gospel, and we began to tell the story of Jesus Christ. Let this be the beginning of the spiritual transformation of New England so that people from every town would come to faith in Christ and fill the South Shore and beyond with the glory of God. Let this be the moment where we begin to pray daily to be filled by the Holy Spirit so that we would overflow with faith to do the holy work God has called us to do. South Shore Baptist Church, may we never cease to declare the magnificent acts of God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Fill us so that we might declare the magnificent acts of God and that we might call those who hear to faith and that by believing our homes, our towns, New England, and the whole earth would be filled with your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.